0: Welcome to another episode of the Cubic Report. My guest today is a multifaceted and multi-talented person that I have known for more than forty years. He started in the pastoral ministry and has continued to write now. He lives in Tucson, Arizona, with his wife Terry, formerly Terry Staley. Many people know her parents. So, first of all, I'd like to introduce Steve Buchanan. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, I know that I've finally arrived in life if I'm uh, able to be a guest on the cubic uh, podcast uh, knowing that you've been on the cutting edge of technology for you know, ever since I've known you. <laughs> so thanks for the opportunity.
0: Well, it's uh, to me it's 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 a great learning experience because through the podcasts, I have really learned about people. and uh, it's just been very, very enjoyable to be able to share it in this particular medium. and I Appreciate Steve, your being able to be willing to do this. Did you actually begin in the, the Dakotas in your ministry?
1: Well, I, I re-began. I first was uh, sent out from uh, Ambassador College in 1975 as a ministerial trainee down to Texas, down to Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, obviously that's where I met my wife Terry. She was a member in the congregation down there, and. During those years, we probably had in 1975. We probably had in the United States about 50 uh, ministerial tra- trainees, uh, people who had graduated from Ambassador College at Big Sandy and Pasadena, uh, and were sent out. You know, I, I guess that was uh, kind of the trial run introduction to the ministry. And then the next year, uh, they furloughed all of us. So we, I was out. I was out for a year, but I was with some. Uh, really great uh, individuals there and of course the greatest blessing was uh, meeting Terry in Corpus Christi
0: well I do remember that I remember that big group of you say 50 people I remember when I think it was Ron Dart who uh, was the director of ministerial of church administration and I've known of several people who were furloughed at that time and uh, many who came back and it was part of their learning yeah it was um
1: it, it was a great experience. I, I worked with two uh, great pastors, two two wonderful teachers, uh, Hal Baird, who was about the age of my own father. So he's kind of like a father figure to me as I was, you know, just 22 years old coming out of Ambassador College. And then uh, John O'Gwen, who probably was the hardest working individual <laughs> I've ever met in my life. And uh, he put me to work right away. And he was, a, they, they were both great examples and uh, had a great time there. And the funny thing about um, when when we were all let go, I think I was the only one who was never notified by a regional director and uh, actually had come come back, uh, had been driving back. Uh, I'd been given the opportunity to give a sermon then at summer of 1976 down in the Harlingen, Texas church. that actually met in Westlaco, but um, I took one of the deacons with me to give the sermonette And uh, when I dropped him off at his house, uh, his wife came out the door and said, I'm really sorry to hear that you lost your job. She had a copy of the Worldwide News with a listing of names of everybody that had been let go. (laughs) So that's how I found out that I didn't have a job anymore.
0: Is that a fact?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there have been been people- Then I I went and I told John O'Gwen, he says, there's gotta be some mistake. I said, it's in print. (laughs) so uh he says well, let's not tell anybody uh maybe maybe they'll forget about you and let you stay on.
0: <laughs> but it seems like the <laughs>
1: true reaction but uh actually you know we, it uh provided the impetus for us to uh we, we we're getting we we're getting married in a month so it couldn't have come at a worse time i guess but um i did find a job in austin texas which was about 170 miles to the north and you know, we began our married life in Austin, Texas, and um, for about three years, I worked outside the church, uh, served, helped in the, uh, in the local Austin, Texas area. And then uh, in 1978, right about the time of my son, my first, our first child's birth, Stephen, uh, I got a really good job with a company that uh, my dad had worked for all his life, but um, it was a major printing company and I'd actually, worked at uh, one of their plants in the summertime in Maryland where I grew up, Mm -hmm. but um, it was just one of those serendipitous things. I I got a great job, had a a great boss, had a great career going in the uh, printing forms business and computer forms business as uh, PCs were just in their very early stages and small mini computers were you know, growing in in number, and some of those uh, some of those companies were some of my clients. But uh, then we got the call; they were expanding again. The ministry was expanding again. They needed somebody, and I didn't know where it was. But they asked if we'd like to come back full time. And in 1979, uh, we went we went to uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, and we had a church in Shadron, Nebraska, as well. So eventually, restarted that uh, congregation there, and. We were there for
0: nine years. Oh, yeah. Well, I do remember that well because during that time, I was in Minneapolis and <clears throat> I started my ministry in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And Rapid City was uh, a Bible study for us at that time. And we went out there once a month from uh, Sioux Falls. It's only freeway half the way. It was Highway 16 the rest of the way. And we after a year... It became a church because there were no churches between sioux falls and spokane washington and rapid city was started i remember so well 49 people in 1970 so that was that is amazing that's that is amazing. amazing and i i lived right there uh, in in town and then i lived out in hill city out there uh, close to mount rushmore so you worked out there so you lived out there for nine years
1: nine years yeah and. Mm-hmm. Um, a great experience you know during those years um well it was the very beginning in in 1980 as you'll remember that was the first year in which the determination was made in pasadena to have the local pastor be the festival coordinator Mm -hmm. and we expanded our number of sites in those years and rapid city had a brand new convention center and it was chosen as a festival site It was a very successful festival site had a great facility and uh, of course i served as the uh, feast coordinator which i've always found to be one of the greatest blessings of the ministry
0: well i know that uh, when rapid city became a festival site it, the first reaction from people was what out there you know <laughs> out there in the middle of anywhere but then people who went out there who came back said this was the most fantastic place uh you know, in it the really country. became
1: it. Re- it really became a very popular uh, location, and we we started the first year. We started in a they had a theater there that uh, sat about seventeen hundred people. But uh, I think there were so many people that wanted to go there. They expanded, and you know we ended up uh, some of the high points. Uh, we ended up in you know their major uh, meeting area for the next few years. So it was you know uh, it was a multi-purpose uh, type place where they had rodeos actually in the wintertime which was crazy but uh, they also had basketball games and i think over the years they've even had uh, hockey games there but at any rate we we probably got up to three or four thousand at the high point so it became a very popular destination with lots of things to do the black hills of course and then mount rushmore and crazy horse and just many scenic areas parks and the great outdoors are just a beautiful time of the year too.
0: Yeah, it's amazing because there's the city which is kind of in the plain there. Then you have the beautiful black hills. I just used to really love driving through them, and we lived on Highway 385, just two miles out of Hill City. And my boss lived at Keystone. I mean, that's right there at Mount Rushmore. And right, I, right. When Keep I there. when I had to go to his house, you know, where, 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 to work, uh, I I saw the nose of uh, George Washington every time I did. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I've
1: probably been to Mount Rushmore hundreds of times during the nine years we lived there, and it's uh, never ceased to be a thrill. It mm-hmm. uh, certainly is a, a place to go, a place to visit. Also, Crazy Horse, I got to know the sculptor, uh, Gutzon Borglum. Oh, yeah. Um, not, not Gutzon Borglum, he's, he did, That's, he He's he the died. Rushmore guy,
0: yeah.
1: He was the Rushmore guy, but... Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, uh, Tchaikovsky was his name, mm-hmm. the... Uh, it was a, a, a tough guy man and I met him in his late 70s and he was uh, he was it, it, we sent a lot of people up there and you know it was a great tourist attraction they're still working on it but um, Korchak Jelkowski was his name and uh, tremendously talented self-taught artist and sculptor and he was just a visionary he really was an incredible person and I remember uh, visiting with him at 11 o'clock in the morning and talking about his life's history and everything was fascinating he had been kicked off the job at mount rushmore by the sculptor there by by guts and borglum oh. and the the indian tribes there uh, hired him because they wanted to have a tribute to their people and they wanted they wanted him to basically carve this mountain that mm-hmm. they owned and it's just an amazing thing i mean you can go on their website It's impressive what they've what they've done
0: it was uh, i would drive by there too and at when i was living there you could barely it was just barely started you couldn't tell what, what it was it was just some equipment up there they were blasting something out but then i took my granddaughter there five years ago bev and i went out there and I wanted her to see where I lived. I wanted her to see Buffalo, and I wanted her to see Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And and I was amazed as to how much work had been done on Chief, Cra- on Chief Crazy Horse uh, Mountain there.
1: Yeah, it, it's truly amazing. And they were very nice people. His wife, Ruth, uh, lived for a number of years afterwards. We still corresponded with her. She, was, she even sent, uh, when she knew that our kids were in grade school working on projects, she even sent us... Uh, Sent us all kinds of information about the work that they had done, so they could do projects on Crazy Horse for their fifth grade <laughs> projects. It was it was great. So they're they're wonderful people.
0: Well, I know that uh, one one reason why I'm attracted to the, to your career is that you do lots of different things. I, I have my fingers in in all kinds of things too. You write and you write well, and I even reread some of your columns this, today just to kind of get acquainted uh, because. A couple years ago, I wrote to you, and you said you were kind of putting it aside for a while. This was in 2021. But then today, I read it, and you just have a real, real way of expressing thoughts in a very clear way. And I'd just like to hear more about some of the extra things that you do, because you're just more than a pastor, always have been, and in your career, you started out, and then you were furloughed, and then you were kind of halfway furloughed again in the future, and it really gave opportunity so to speak for other things can you elaborate on that
1: yeah well we we did have some uh, as a as a as a church as you know uh, we we had some financial difficulties in the late 90s and a number of us were placed on half salary and it kind of kind of forced me to reevaluate things obviously um i loved what i was doing but um it, it was kind of you know it was it was a make or break time for us kids were going into college two boys were going into college and in the process of going to college and just you know i was 47 years old at the time and it's not the time to really be looking for a new career but i was able to manage to uh, eventually get into the pharmaceutical business and it was dynamic and it was fun and it was interesting and uh, i would say that overall Lemons can be turned into lemonade and God can do that for you. And I I guess maybe that's the biggest learning experience that uh, we had. I won't say that it was really easy, but uh, I found the work to be very challenging and very interesting and very stimulating and uh, tapped into an area of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it expertise, but at least maybe interest, at least in science and biology and chemistry that, uh, that I'd had for a long time. And uh, it was, it provided me with a good career. So uh, I was happy that, uh, you know, in the end, I mean, not good losing your job or being put on half salary. And, uh, but uh, there were some, there were many, many good benefits. uh, And they still accrue today,
0: as a matter of fact. In life, I take a look at things, you know, I've had a, long career since 1969 when I started out. And even though I was, quote, employed all that time, I've had some really rocky roads. And there are times when everything kind of turns to black and you kind of wonder where you're going. And at one point I was also forty five and had to change churches. You know, back in nineteen <laughs> you know. No, I was, actually I was getting closer to fifty. But you know, kinda of wondering what's gonna happen and this was with the start of the United Church of God in uh, nineteen ninety five. But you learn things and and uh, you reevaluate your uh, convictions and you reevaluate your thoughts and and how you think and not only that, what you think about yourself but what you can do for others. And I find that in the darkest of times, opportunities, wonderful opportunities, you know, come our way that we wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Well, for sure. And I think you have a lot of members that listen to your podcast. And um, uh, I, think it's, I think it's good that everybody knows that we share these kind of trials together. I mean, I think it's, it's a good thing for us all to understand that, you know, we can have suffering and it, it, it includes the ministry. The suffering is not something that... Uh, it just happens to the members of the church. And when we hold somebody's hand after they've lost a loved one, we know that they've hopefully they know that we've gone through some of the same trials and really empathize with them as well. So no matter we're all we're all going to go through these uh, situations and um, how we face them, how we face them with faith, I think helps helps refine and define us, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely. And uh, if we didn't have these trials, we would be looking like we're just sailing through life and get a free ride while everybody else is suffering. And uh, exactly, you know, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ—he suffered more than anyone. Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, in uh, so in uh, eventually in 1999, I caught on with a company that um, provided me a kind of an entry level into the pharmaceutical business, and um, you know, learning a new industry, learning, learning things about science that uh, actually something was very very interesting to me was uh, when I migrated later on to Eli Lilly which uh, was the oldest uh, oldest of all American-owned pharmaceutical companies going back to you know just after the time of the Civil War and its founding with its uh, founding founding uh, member Colonel Eli Lilly who was a colonel in the northern army i found that that was i'd work for a company a belgian company called solvay pharmaceuticals then i was recruited by a danish company that uh, was in the diabetes area with insulin and uh, novo nordisk one of the world's largest manufacturers of insulin mm-hmm. certainly the dominant player and in, um, in europe and many other parts of the world and then i was recruited um By a good friend of mine from college, Steve Walden, to be a part of the launch of a new product that Eli Lilly was launching. And I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we want to get into the technical analysis of the science behind it, but it was it was fascinating.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, well, just uh, tell us a little bit about what made it unique to you. What made it so interesting?
1: Well, of course... I think I have to go back a little bit and explain why this was interesting to me. I grew up in a small town, and and the, the physician in our town was kind of a, you know, just common sense, good family doctor, and uh, he really took pride in taking care of his patients. He made house calls. He, he he took care of me as a little kid a couple of times when I had injuries and dog bites and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cuts and broken, broken bones and stuff. But um, I really learned that there are a lot of good people in the medical field. And the fascinating thing about the new product that was launched in 2002 with Lilly was that it was basically a hormone, very similar in, in, in terms to human insulin, but it was a fragment of the parathyroid hormone, which is, you know I don't want to get too technical, mm-hmm. but hormones are made up of amino acid chains. And the parathyroid hormone is made up of, is an 84 amino acid chain. They've been able to identify these things, right? And so they found out through a very serendipitous way that if they isolated the first 34 of these amino acids and injected it on a daily basis, it would be a tremendous boon to bone metabolism. And this is especially important for people who, have osteoporosis or at the beginning stages or even late stages of osteoporosis. So it was basically proven a very, very natural method of recreating bone at a time of life, you know, for postmenopausal women and sometimes small small number of men. Uh it was it was, you know, a miraculous type of discovery that was very, very helpful for uh for people. And it was just, you know, injected very similar to insulin injections, but um, done for a two year period and really had incredible, incredible results. And that aspect of it was really very, very gratifying Mm -hmm. to be able to present a solution to a problem. So I felt uh, very, and, and during that time, I got to know some of the world leading experts in bone metabolism and people that are super super smart you know the people that are top of the class and in uh, various places in the world and it was um, fascinating to be able to you know be placed in a position of being able to rub elbows with them and question them and talk to them and get information from them and uh, some of them were consultants to the company and you know, sometimes we'd bring them out to speak to our local physicians, and of course, these people—you know—it's a small field. It's small, small number of people that are at the top of the field, and I got to know them all. It was um, incredible. Uh, some of them just absolute super geniuses, and mm-hmm. uh, but very, very balanced people uh, for the most part. Some of them actually uh, lived in Tucson, and I had access to them on a regular basis.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is interesting to me because I lived in Indianapolis and now live in Indianapolis again here. And of course, that's the world headquarters of Lilly. I lived only about five miles from the Lilly Mansion, actually had a chance to tour the grounds there and tour the main office. And of course, Lilly is big. And Lilly has actually been very kind to LifeNets so And when we were there, we were a startup nonprofit. And, you know, we had a grant from them and really a really appreciated that. And then whenever you talk about Lily, you know, I just kind of feel like I'm drafting you, you know, I'm drafting with you, you know, on that there are two big things about Indianapolis. One is Lily and the other is the speedway. And that was about the same distance from right. both,
1: both places. Oh, well, wow. yeah. Yeah. I've been, been to the speedway. It's unbelievable. I had a tour there, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Indianapolis is uh, very, very special, uh, to me. I, my family hasn't visited, Uh, the city, but I've been there many times for training purposes uh, throughout the years. I was with Lily for 15 years, and I think uh, one thing is very gratifying is to know that uh, in 1921, type 1 diabetes was basically incurable, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was was, um, people had had diabetes, type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. goes all the way back for thousands of years. It's been a condition. It's been there, but until nineteen twenty one when a couple of researchers by name of uh, Banting and Best in Toronto were experimenting with uh, the pancreases of dogs <laughs> they um, they they discovered a cure uh, basically for for diabetes and that you know that for various reasons sometimes people lose the capacity in their pancreas to produce insulin and so uh, banting and Best were able to figure out that um, through experimentations on dogs, that uh, at that time, they, you know, they that was when they found out that the pancreas produced insulin and they were able to produce insulin from the, you know, it sounds gross in a way, but mm-hmm. at least it advanced the science uh, by taking pancreas out of a dog and then reconstituting the contents of it, injecting it back in and, you know, reversing the diabetes of a dog. Okay. So mm-hmm. that's what led to the human discovery of of insulins that would help human beings. And the first person that was ever treated with insulin instead of dying at 20 years old, because the lifespan of diabetics, uh, type one diabetics at that time was limited to about 19 or 20. Hmm. So to know that something, probably one of the most profound scientific discoveries of the 20th century actually helped people to live Relatively normal lives. Now, I mean, the first insulins that were produced were bovine and porcine uh, type type insulins, you know, from mm-hmm. from animals, and you know, not the exact match for human beings. But at least it did give people an opportunity to live longer lives instead of just starving uh, starving to death or mm-hmm. just dying because you you're just not going to you're not going to live. So uh, later on and. Uh, the insulins became better and better. They were able to replicate human insulin and be able to. You know, I mean, there have been so many advances in it. It's uh, people. People can live basically very normal lives on insulin pumps or injections, and you know, they have basically identical uh, insulins that the body would produce. And if you're attacked by a disease that attacks your pancreas, then at least there's hope. So there, that that was. You know, knowing that you're part of a company that has led in that particular fight is uh, was certainly very, very gratifying, Vic.
0: Well, that's, that, that, that's just very interesting to hear. I know that in our ministry, you know, we talk to people about various things in life, you know, spiritual matters, but also physical matters. And, you know, we come across diabetes and you know, people ask us, pray for them. People ask us for advice, not medical advice, you know, but advice how to cope. And what you're, what you're saying here is just very, very helpful.
1: Yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, it's it's not a death sentence like it used to be 100 years ago, because it really was. There was, I mean, you know, the, we have these uh, places in our body that uh, produce hormones, and it's, it's what God designed, right? And, mm. you know, because we live in a world that's, you know, it's not the world tomorrow yet, at least mankind has been able to figure out some solutions to help until you know there are cures for these things, and and maybe you know the the greatest the greatest thing would be if God helped healed all of our diseases, but um, at least in being mankind being able to employ the mechanism and using his ingenuity and being able to advance science has been a way to. I know there's a lot of church members that uh, have. Type 1 diabetes, and for the most part, with the right treatment and the right help, there's more, there's certainly more options available to them now than there ever have been. Mm -hmm. So
0: that's, that's, that's a huge thing. It's great. Now, one, I'd like to kind of turn to another subject here. I'd like to talk a little bit about a person who lived in your area in Tucson that you were very, very kind to and helped for a long time in his older years. And that is Ellis Laravia and his wife, Gwen. I knew him, you know, as a teacher. I knew him as a speaker in Pasadena, California. I knew him and the various things that he did. I found him to be a very fascinating person because of his amazing ability to manage many different things. And also his, I would say his humility in being able to talk about these things. Because I, as you know, I visited you a couple of times in Tucson in my role in ministerial services, you know, to visit with ministers and went to see Ellis LaRavia, who was retired with his wife, Glenn, in Tucson. I'd like to hear more about your knowing him.
1: Yeah, I I first met uh, Ellis in 1980 when I was brought into Pasadena, and he was kind of uh, heading up the program to expand the number of fee sites as you know back in those days and we went from like i don't know eight or twelve in the u.s to maybe 20 or 25 and maybe it got more than that but uh, since i was going to be a coordinator i was going to be working directly with him because he was managing the festival office along with a lot of other departments in pasadena as you know i was in a i mean as a young person i was still young at that time a very young uh, 28 30 years old and being able to get to know somebody of his caliber and as you said his humility was incredible and the, the thing that was most impressive was his his ability to just trust you to do the job mm-hmm. and um, it was uh, i remember i told the story about him one time because my budget i think for the first year, in uh, Rapid City, was like ten thousand dollars, you know, to put on the whole feast, you know, for <laughs> you know for the for the eight days, which is you know it was a lot of money back then. But I uh, went in the next year and asked for a thousand dollar more for the budget. And, you know, I met him, you you remember where his office was. It was opposite of, on the opposite wing or opposite side of the fourth floor of the Hall of Administration. And it was massive. I mean, you could almost play baseball. (laughs) You remember that, right? You know, we sat down, we talked, he asked me what I wanted. He made me feel good. He made me feel better about being turned down for that budget increase than if somebody else had just told me yes and just give me but he he denied the extra funding but he made me feel good about it <laughs> <laughs> i know you can do it Steve. and then um, so so we had that relationship that was established for a number of years before i think it was like 1991 or 1992 i got a call And at that time, the uh, LaRavias, uh, Alice and Gwen, were living in the Wisconsin Dells area. And um, I got a call clear out of the blue sky. And it was Alice. And he said, Steve, he says, you know, we've been thinking about moving. What would you think about us moving down to Tucson? And I could could not contain my excitement with him. Mm -hmm. I said, what can I do to help you? And so Ellis came down. I mean, you talk about a humble servant. He came down. And he made it, of course, he supported what I did and was a mentor to me for many years after that time. And it was great getting to know both he and Gwen. They're both brilliant people. We were very close to them for, you know, the entire time that they were here. But talk about an incredible person to go through war with. I mean, you know, when the the times of... uh, change began to roil in the the early 90s and through 1995 he was like a warrior the people people loved him very very dearly here and a tough loss for us um, with ellison ellison gwen died within a few months of each other and it was a tragic loss for us really but he contributed so much and so wise and always very helpful in counseling and never overbearing never never uh, intending to do anything but to support and to help and to serve and uh, we were we ended up as great friends great colleagues and uh, I'll never forget his encouragement on a personal level I mean he was a great speaker and you know helped out in the local areas here but um, I think the people that got to know Ellis on a personal level really, Really admired and appreciated is um, his dedication and his faith.
0: I got to know him very well when he was exiting Pasadena, which was a difficult time for him personally. Yes, and you know he moved to Nevada there for a while, and I remember writing to him several times at Zephyr Cove, <laughs> you know, uh, up there, and and then you know he moved on to, uh, he he moved on to the Wisconsin Dells but I just do remember he was just very very kind he was very very open and then later when I got to know him a little bit more in the Wisconsin Dells you know he would invite us at the feast time you know to that house they would have a dinner for the ministers and Gwen and him would kind of be working on on the dinner themselves you know
1: but then they're he, great cooks they were they were both great cooks i mean they were they were fantastic chefs mm-hmm. and uh, w- w- we had some incredible dinners together they were great hosts.
0: Well we had we had those, you know, with him. And then he a thing that really struck me in his last years, which was when I visited you, you know, Gwen had really severe health problems. And I remember just spending the whole afternoon with them just We would just talk through things. He would talk about his relationship a lot with Mr. Armstrong, which I found to be very interesting, In the trust that Mr. Armstrong placed in him. Mr. Armstrong was very, very specific about people that he really trusted, and Alice LaRavia was one of them. In fact, he said... Mr. Armstrong, please don't give me any more jobs. You know, he just had this job over all the physical plant, the feast sites, and other things. You know that maybe I don't even know about that he was responsible for. But he would he would talk about uh, all, all that. But I do remember that with Gwen in the room there, you know, he would be very very tender with her. You know, he would he would be so kind to her. It was just a real example of an older person caring for his older wife. Really an, an example of, of uh, this love for somebody very, very close to you and just being with them. And I feel, in a way, the fact that they died close to one another was probably just right. Just both of them entering into the new world uh, together. Probably. Yeah,
1: probably so. It, it, one of the most fascinating times. Of course. Uh, By the time Ellis had died, he had been here for almost 30 years. And so obviously we had many, many deep discussions about the past and the present, the future of the work of God and, you know, his part in it. A lot of people didn't realize that he was over the physical plant of all of our properties in Worldwide Church of God all around the world, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know. Mr. as you said, Mr. Armstrong would continue to add more responsibility to him. And he'd say, Mr. Armstrong, I'm I've, I've, I've already doing too much. And he said, well, I trust you. And he said, well, you know, I'm just going to have to delegate this to somebody else. And he says, that's fine. That's, that's fine. You'll just delegate somebody good. And so he trusted in that way. But one of the most fascinating discussions I had with Ellis was on an evening when he apparently had a uh, a stroke and I was sitting at dinner with Terry and we were finishing up Friday night dinner together. And I got a call from one of the members in, in Phoenix, who is a nurse. And he said, uh, Steve, he said, uh, I I just got off the phone with Ellis. I think there's something wrong. He says, he, he just doesn't sound right. And I said, okay, look, I only lived, we only lived about seven or eight minutes from Drive time from Ellis and Gwen, so I said I'm going to go over there. And Gwen, at this time, was in the um, was in a care home, with a care facility. So Ellis was by himself. So this was in this would be in uh, January or maybe the early part of February of 2020. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, 2020. And so I I raced over there and I knocked on the door. Ellis was slow coming to the door, and I could tell something was wrong. It, it was. It was pretty obvious that he had had a stroke, so I called nine one one immediately, and there was there was a crew, uh, just you know a, about a minute or two from where we were. They were at a restaurant close by, and so they were they dashed over and they took him to the hospital. and I followed, and uh, you know he'd had the classic symptoms of a slur, of a stroke, some slurred speech, some lack of mobility, and that sort of thing, and they took him right away. And I followed behind, followed the gurney in. And the amazing thing was that he recovered so quickly. So mm-hmm. for the next three hours, while they were trying to put him in a room, we just talked, we just sat there and, you know, he was clear as a bell. Doctors would come in, they'd introduce themselves. And then 10 minutes later, they'd come in, he called them by their name. And so we had a fascinating discussion. One of the most fascinating things that uh, he revealed to me at that time, and he'd talked in a talked about this at other times, I think, during during sermons and such, but uh, he he mentioned a time in which Mr. Armstrong visited with Prince Charles at the time, and he and Gwen sat in another room, and they were visiting with Princess Di. They spent the whole afternoon mm-hmm. with Princess Di. I think it was probably during those times when uh, the Church of God was making contribution to the Shakespeare Theater, mm-hmm. something of the sort, in in London he told me at that time, I, I probably can reveal it for the first time. <laughs> he, he'll he have to get, he'll have to get over being mad at me in the resurrection and <laughs> said, don't tell anybody this. And I, I haven't, but uh, I think I can share it with you and your audience. But um, uh, one of the trip that it was either that trip or another trip to London where Mr. Armstrong was waiting for his driver to pick him up. And Gwen was, Gwen was um, waiting there for the, for, with Mr. Armstrong, and uh, he just looked at her. He says, I think I'm just going to have to turn this work and this church over to your husband. And, and then he looked at me He says, don't you ever tell anybody that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess we let the cat out of the bag. But um, he, he, ha- he did have a very close association. Mr. Armstrong, because of his uh, many things, as we read about in the autobiography, many things that happened to him early in his ministry you know, it seemed like he was he was uh, stabbed in the back so many different times. You know, during those early years, that when he found somebody he could trust, he really did place a lot of trust in Mister. LaRavia Was an incredibly trustworthy person.
0: Absolutely, he could just share share his inner thoughts. Well, I think it's okay for you to talk about. I think we've passed the statute of limitations, you know, <laughs> to to reveal the the history of our our organization, our church. Uh, I would like to just, in the final part of the interview, just turn to one more thing, which I found to be very fascinating about you, is uh, your World News and Prophecy newsletter. Uh, you've had it running now for a number of years, and you know, a number of ministers have newsletters of one kind or another in different formats, and I have always appreciated yours. Uh, can you uh, tell us about the newsletter, what's its focus? I know prophecy is, and I know that you have very, very strong opinions, you know, about uh, about things, of course, and sometimes, you know, opinions are uh, shared, some, and some some have different opinions. But, uh, Steve, tell us about your newsletter.
1: Well, this began in 2015 with um, the observation of uh, Brexit. Uh, I found it fascinating that there would be a national referendum in, in England to overturn decades of work that would place Britain, Great Britain in the European community. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it has been, it has been kind of a topic that we've gone back and forth and studied and looked at for many, many years. But the interesting thing was that many of the political leaders in Great Britain didn't want this to go forward. They didn't, they didn't want what the people wanted. And I saw what happened there of course they they did vote in this national referendum to to exit the european community and although i don't think we can necessarily say there's a direct prophetic implication there it just has been something that we as a church have always felt that eventually they would they would not be a part of this european community because you know they're anglo-saxons they're different people and they did vote that's all that I didn't necessarily want, and I don't want my newsletter to become something is predictive in nature because it's not, it's uh, just, I, I, I more or less think of it uh, as I admired the skill and work of um, somebody that, you know, we, we both highly respected that uh, wrote on a weekly basis for our benefit in the pastor's report, uh, Gene Hogbert. Yeah, And I, I, I was, thought, he's got a great style, what a great writer he was, and um, really kept us advised of world events. And so what I saw in 2015 kind of formed a working theory. And I wrote, I wrote basically a newsletter to my own mailing list of local church members. And as time went on, and basically, well, to finish the thought, um, this populist movement, I thought, well, I had a working theory that As we view the history of the English speaking peoples, what happens in, you know, with our cousins in Great Britain and Canada and uh, some parts of South Africa, New Zealand and, uh, you know, Australia, things usually have happened prophetically in those nations first, like the rise to prominence, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, followed by, uh, you know, subsequent action that is similar in the United States. And so my working theory at that time was that in, in writing that first initial newsletter to our members was that it might presage something that would happen in our country. And in fact, uh, the election of uh, Donald Trump was obviously, whether wh- whatever anybody thinks of him, it was a populist movement that mm-hmm. took place. And so since that time, it just got to be kind of, difficult to maintain a newsletter because people would say, Hey, can you put me on this? And then, you know, you have to maintain a mailing list and so forth. So I I decided around 2020 to launch a website and I'm probably the least technical guy to be able to do this. And so it's a work in progress. And, uh, but basically my style is to evaluate what's happening in the world and see if there are any prophetic implications to it. And I think, obviously, since the age of COVID, we've all seen that the world has changed dramatically. And, uh, you know, I've tried to cover some of that in, um, in, the, in this particular newsletter. So, Well, I think,
0: first of all, I have to say that uh, you don't feel ashamed, but the technical part is very, very clear. It's uh, got the titles for each one with a little snippet there with uh, Read More and got great titles. You know, the last one is The Great Falling Away, then The Eve of Destruction, Attack on Israel. I mean, all things that you'd like to read. So I just wanted to give kudos for, for the newsletter. And I know all the things that we do, even this podcast, you just learn to do it better. Yeah, that's,
1: that's right. And I, I've, I've encouraged um, other colleagues and people from the international areas of uh, United Church of God to contribute. And we've had some contributions from other ministers. Peter Eddington has written a couple of articles and I'm I'm happy to publish those with byline. I try to, I I keep my own name out of it because not that I'm trying to be anonymous, but um, I'd like the content to shine, not the individual. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't put my name on it um, for that reason, but I don't mind your, I don't mind your audience knowing that I'm behind it, but uh, I want to make it very clear that uh, what I'm, what this is doing is, you know, kind of like what your podcast is doing. It's supportive of everything we do in United Church of God. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I link, link to articles where it's appropriate things that others have done. And I think our own writing has been amazing. I think the own, the depth of research that we have had that we've produced in like 25 years is been just absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, And the breadth of work uh, that that we have developed through the years has been amazing. So prophecy has been interesting thing, not as a hobby or a fad or just anything. But, you know, going back to the time of my calling, I I remember that asking my mother, you know, what was my brother? What religion was my brother getting into? That's Mm -hmm. my older brother, Hugh, who died a few years ago. Um, And uh, Hugh was a great student from the very beginning and uh, he was called to the church in the early 70s and then i was going to college at the time and and i asked my mother what 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 is what do these crazy people believe anyway if you could just boil it down and i didn't know that my mother knew this much about the church at that time but i guess she had listened a little more closely to my brother he he was not living at home at the time and he he was out of college and working and working in a neighboring town but she said to me something that really shocked my world she said well i think they believe that jesus christ is going to return to earth mm-hmm. and i grew up as a lutheran mm-hmm. <laughs> we were never taught this and back in those days the church of god basically owned the market on bible mm-hmm. prophecy i mean billy graham mr armstrong told us the story of uh the owner of herod's department store many years ago, orchestrated a phone call where he would introduce Billy Graham to uh, Herbert Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong was <laughs> kind of embarrassed. He told us this story one time in a Bible study or a sermon in Brickett Wood that, uh, that this phone call had taken place. And Billy Graham was very gracious to Herbert Armstrong, and he called him Brother Armstrong, and mm-hmm. he thanked him for his ministry of prophecy. And so that's what that's what we were known for. And that's always stuck with me since that time that, you know, back then, hardly anybody believed or taught that Jesus Christ was going to return to earth and establish the kingdom of God. Okay. But Mm -hmm. now it's, it's pretty widespread and, you know, we don't necessarily own the market and it's not ours to own, but I still find that it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating topic to uh, look at and, you know, certainly to to help us to be prepared as uh, wise and faithful servants uh, for Christ's return.
0: Well, we had the world tomorrow. You know, which was uh, basically focusing on the kingdom of God and what was that? You know, that was the return of Jesus Christ to to the earth and establishing His kingdom and government. That's been sort of staple for us. I know that others preach it too, but we were talking about a program that had the byline. What was it? Uh, Today's World News and the prophecies of the world of the world tomorrow i you you mentioning there about brexit this is just very interesting i had a very huge brexit moment because at the time that the results of that plebiscite or that vote were made i was in ukraine and i was uh, there for the 20th anniversary of the uh, rehabilitation center that Life Nets was very much a part of in starting. And I was there for the celebration. But another group that was very involved with that was a, a group of British uh, physici- well, physicians and, and nonprofit uh, workers. And the plebiscite, the vote, was being taken while we were there. And we were on a bus to go out someplace to, to view something. And on the bus, it was probably 20 people from Great Britain. And they announced the vote. They announced the vote right there on the bus. So I saw, here I was with these British people, and just that bus, it was 50-50. Half of them were Remainers, and half of them were Brexiteers. It was just amazing how they started talking to one another. I saw that division right there firsthand among these people as that announcement was made. To me, that was a Brexit moment for me.
1: Yeah, that, that, that that's amazing because the the vote was just slightly over fifty percent, if I remember
0: correctly. It was very close, yeah. very close. It was it was very
1: close, but uh, they're out now and um, it, it's done. So it it remains to be seen what uh, what the future of Great Britain and you know possibly being locked out of markets and so on and so forth. But uh, we we just don't know, do we? I mean, uh, we've been we've been talking about uh, things that are similar to this for many many years mm-hmm. and it's it's fascinating to see how it develops it often doesn't develop as as we might expect or as we might have said 20 or 30 years ago so no the predictive no. nature of of these things is something that we don't get into so it's something i i don't get into on the, on the website or at least i don't i don't feel i do maybe i'm maybe i'm uh, not as objective about about the website as as i could be but uh, i definitely don't want to be in the prediction mode. It's not. It's, it has nothing to do with me. I'm. I'm. I, I think of myself as an observer of what is going on and what God is doing, and um, trying to help people to make sense of it from a biblical mm-hmm. standpoint.
0: Steve, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on and and talking about these things. I'd like to talk again about some of more specifics. And what I'd like to do is to, in the notes that accompany this podcast, to include the URL for your newsletter and uh, hope that some people can take advantage of it by going to your website.
1: I hope they do. It's free to subscribe and it's pretty simple to do so. And uh, you can either just look for articles uh, that interest you. It's got a fairly good search engine to it, or you can subscribe and it'll come to your mailbox when anything is published. And um, uh, I'm I'm always looking for content from uh, other writers. And uh, if you have something you'd like to write, uh, hey, I would uh, love to invite you to be a a guest. I'll give you a byline and, uh, you know, uh, you can certainly feel free to write at any time. I do link, as I mentioned, I'd link to uh, things that I feel are very helpful and will provide additional information for readers. And, you know, it's not just for church members. Uh, You know, I've got a lot of subscribers that, you know, maybe are friends from industry or friends in the community and people that, you know, just, happened upon the website so but mm-hmm. would love to have uh, any of your listeners to join in and you know give feedback on the website
0: okay well thank you very much for the invitation and i'll uh, put that into my hat here <laughs> so but anyway steve thank you so much once again for coming here onto my podcast
1: it's been my great pleasure thank you victor okay
0: well we'll see you again and may god bless you in your work thank you thank you for listening to us today on the cubic report we welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words the Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K U B I K. We'd love to hear from you write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's v-k-u-b-i-k at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.